I'd like to welcome Coach Dana Cavalea to the Four Pines Private Capital web webcast. We're very excited and honored that you're joining us today to talk about a few topics that are near and dear to our core here at, at Four Pines. But before we jump in, I'd like for you to share your background and your experience with everyone, because I think it really sets the stage for our discussion today. So with that, Coach Dana, please. Cool. Mike, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, the one question I always get is how did you get into coaching? And the answer I always give, it's pretty standard for me, is that I was an underperforming player that relied heavily on coaching. And, you know, at a young age, I realized how powerful having somebody in your corner can be and somebody that can sort of sharpen your sword and show you where you need to get better and, and how to get better. And give you, again, the support along that journey to, to closing the gap of, hey, here's where I am right now. Here's where I want to go. How the heck do I get there? So, you know, I started my career. I went to college at the University of South Florida. I have a degree in sports medicine. And really, I, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. That was my aspiration. That was my goal. Unfortunately, I didn't have the talent to do it. So I had to find an alternative way. And really, uh, it was somewhat scripted to go to school down in Tampa. The New York Yankees just happened to have spring training down there every year. So here I am, 19 years old. I'm working as an intern for the University of South Florida with the football team. And I don't know anything about training. I don't know anything about development. And really, it was a, a, a first immersion for me outside of just being a player myself. So New York Yankees, I catch wind are coming to town in mid-February. So I drive my old beat up car over to the complex over in Tampa. I park about a mile and a half away because I couldn't afford to park any closer. So I take my walk up to the stadium and I'm taking pictures of some of the great names of Yankee history, Derek Cheater, uh, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, all these great players through a, a chain link fence with a flip phone. This is back in 2002. And I'm sending all these pictures home and it was a great day, beautiful day. Then I head back to my internship at the University of South Florida. A gentleman I was working under by the name of Ron McKeefree says, Dana, can I talk to you in my office? And where I come from, those words are not very uh, positive often. So I go into the office and he says, listen, I have a great opportunity for you. I know you're a baseball guy. I know you're a big Yankees fan. I just got a call from their head strength coach. And he was wondering if I had anybody here that would want to hand out water, hand out towels, and basically keep the place clean. Would you have any interest in that? And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I just got back from there and uh, I'd love the opportunity. When do I start? And he says, well, you start tomorrow. So I get back in my piece of crap car. I drive over there. I park up front. I walk in the office. The lady at the desk says, are you Dana Cavalier? I said, yes. I'm greeted by a guy named Patrick Scanlon. He walks me in the back, throws a credential around my neck with my name on it. It says C for clubhouse access, F for field access. Walk me into the clubhouse, throw me in, in Yankee gear. And next thing you know, that same field I was taking a picture of the day before, I'm now in the middle of. I'm in the middle of team stretch and I'm looking at everybody else on the other side of that fence. So at 19, I realized very quickly that you can go from one side of the fence to the other. Uh, and time is not always the answer. It's just being resourceful and putting yourself in a great position. So I've tried to do that my whole career. I know that people are the most powerful currency in the world. So I try to surround myself with great people and run with champions. And ultimately, the rest takes care of itself if you keep showing up with enthusiasm. 
Yeah, that's that's an amazing story. We'll have to talk about that offline a little bit because I spent uh, a little bit of time in Tampa as well. So I know exactly okay. where <laughs> what, what you're talking about. But I'm going to five minutes into the into this go completely off script a little bit. Tell us about that first first coach or that first leader that you came across that really influenced you in a way that's that that was really life changing that that, you know, to this day, you still go back and reflect upon. Well, you know, one of those those leaders is uh, that coach at the University of South Florida, Ron McKeefrey, who right away uh, started talking to us young guys at the time about the importance of marketing yourself as a coach. So you have to be great in terms of having the skills, but you'll only go so far with that. You have to also be uh, be a marketer. You have to get yourself out there. You have to put yourself out there. You have to get to know the people in your industry that make it happen. And eventually, if you spend enough time around those people, you become known as one of those people that make it happen. So, you know, I learned early on that it's not just about what you know, it's about who you know and what you know, working together. And I always use this word enthusiasm. You have to have an enthusiasm for learning and you have to have an enthusiasm for for pushing things forward. Like I'm a big believer in pressure not so much pressure putting on me, but putting pressure on the things I want to have happen, strategic pressure at all times. And you'll be amazed at what you could make happen and what you could move forward with a sense of urgency, enthusiasm, and strategic pressure. You know, too often I find those that I work with, they sit and they wait too much, right? Because again, they're thinking time is the answer. But if you put strategic pressure on people and things, you will spark and create and generate a reaction. And that reaction will lead to something, either positive or negative, but either way, you're creating something and you're constantly moving something forward. And that's, that's really what it takes today. Great. So in your most recent book, Habits of a Champion Team, you talk about the difference between communication and connection. I'd like you to spend some time walking us through what those differences are and give us a few examples as it relates to as it relates to both athletic and business teams. Yeah. So, you know, what the way I look at uh, communication is it's like talking at somebody and leaders today, they have a great um, propensity to talk at people. Most leaders are fast thinkers. They know the answer sometimes to the questions they're already asking. They know what they want. They're very scripted and they're very directed. So they tend to just talk to people and talk at people, and then they move on to the next thing. Sometimes they're actually talking to somebody and their headspace is actually on to the next thing already. It's very classic with, with entrepreneurs, with high performers and high performance leaders. But the point of connection is something I got really firsthand learning from Joe, uh, Joe Torrey. I got a chance to work under Joe Torrey and Joe Torrey was very scripted and very calculated but he was also a guy that valued connection, meaning he'd come in and he'd spend time with you and ask you how you feel and actually give a shit about how you feel. You know, where I got a chance to contract, contrast the leadership of a Joe Girardi who was much more direct. He was a direct hitter. Boom, 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 boom. And what happened was the players lacked the connection. So if you don't have connection, but you have communication, there could also be issues, right? Today, um, tonality is so, so important. Somebody may perceive what it is that you're saying as negative or a threat just by the tonality that you're using as you, as you communicate with them. So if you connect, you actually could be more direct, but most people don't connect. And connection 
the, the issue is that it takes time. The issue is that most people say they don't have time. And we learned very quickly during COVID that people have time. They just don't use it efficiently or effectively, or they use it selfishly for what they want to use it for. So they do have time. We all have time. We just have to decide how we allocate it and how we use it. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And I want to stay on this topic if we can for a second, because this really hits home to sort of a core tenet that we have and, and that I strongly believe in. And I couldn't agree with you more about that communication and that co connection. And I think that connection is really critical to building uh, the culture that you want from a company perspective. And what I get from a lot of my larger peers in the industry is, hey, it's easy to build that when you have a 25-person firm, a 50-person firm, a 100-person firm. But that really doesn't work when you have 1,500 people or 2,000 people at a company. What's your response to that? So I always say, you know, even with that, with a lot of, you know, like I work with Puma, that's a company that I work with, big workforce all over the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to remember that there's a team within the team concept. So you don't have to manage every one of those employees or even take on the responsibility of that, but somebody does. So it's your job to always think, okay, how do I influence the person that's closest to me? And then they influence the person that's closest to them or the team that's closest to them. So it's the team within the team concept. Like for me, I had to oversee not just the major league team, but I had to oversee, you know, 300 players in our minor leagues. So those were six different teams, right? You have A ball, short season, double A, triple A, and you know, a bunch of other teams in between that. So I'd never tried to get to even know every single one of those players because it was impossible. So I didn't even put that pressure on me to do so. But what I did was I spent time with those who can make the impact and push the mission and the vision and the tactics forward to those players because those people were in direct contact with those players. So you can't be everywhere and you can't do everything. And a big mistake is trying to do everything and be everything for everyone. And, you know, and, and the other thing is this, Mike, you know, for some, they're not great people, people. Yep. So if you're not a great people person, it's very hard sometimes to become that, you know, when you're 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, and you're just not really a people person and history says that you're not, find someone that is and put them on your team and they could become your voice. Because when you're not a people person, you could be brash, you could be aggressive tonality. It is what it is. It may make you great at what you do, but you have to have somebody to interpret your messages for you. So that's just another sidebar to that. Yeah, all, all, all makes sense. It's all about the infrastructure that you've put in place and the people that you that that you have around you to help you execute within that infrastructure. Yeah, do, doing too much is a is a disease today. Yeah, you know, I, I work with a, a gentleman in in uh, venture capital, and he's got offices in the United States as well as over in Switzerland. And he says, you know, you can't forget that sometimes eighty percent is enough. Not everything requires 100%. And if you're somebody that wants to give 100%, this is why I have an issue when people say, give 110%. What does that even look like? You know, some things require 80%. Give it the 80 and give the things that matter the 100. So yes. don't try to do too much. Don't try to be everything. What, what are your, what I call, what are your income producing activities? What are your IPAs? What are your HYAs, your high yield activities? Focus on that. 
And you'll be amazed at how many high performers don't even know what their income producing activity or activities are or what their high yield activities are. Get clear on that. And all of a sudden clarity leads to what I call as your three C's, right? You got clarity, you got confidence and conviction. Can't have confidence, can't have conviction without clarity. It's number one. Yeah, well, great. Yeah. So moving on, keeping with the sports business theme, you've talked to the Washington Post several times about amazing performers like Tom Brady, and you've really emphasized the importance of consistency. I'd like for you to touch on that and uh, for a bit and tell us what you've seen uh, different coaches do and, 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 and leaders and how they've achieved and maintained that consistency, because that's really the challenge, right? Right. So they have found what works for them and they've put it into a system a personal system for success. Last week I talked on, you know, how to, how to automate success. And you know, success is really what you determine it to be. But when it comes to consistency, you have to automate consistency. When you look at these sort of high impact activities that have the greatest yield for you personally, what is it, right? We, we talked earlier about training. You know, when I train physically, it has a high yield on the other side that I feel mentally stronger, I'm physically healthier, I can endure more, and I become mentally tough. So where in your day is training, right? And that training should have a place every day. It should probably be like what we do with athletes is we put it in the same place every single day. So if you're going to train and enhance your physicality, which you know in turn will strengthen your mentality, that should be, that should be your 6 a.m. every day. That should be your 6 a.m. It has to have a place. So too often we try to be consistent, but we don't schedule consistency. So what we do with athlete, with our players and what I do with the executives I work with is we put them on a plan, right? We build out their schedule for them and their schedule does the heavy lifting for them. The schedule incorporates the consistency so they don't have to actually try and use willpower. There's an automated situation that they've built for themselves. And when you see 6 a.m., 7 a.m., wherever that is, that's not a, a, a time that's up for negotiation. Oh, so-and-so wants to meet me for this. It's like, no, you have an appointment there. That is a part of your success system. So if you're going to give that up, technically you can't want success and give that up. You can't. Yeah, and, and if we get to the questions uh, a little bit later in the, the, the fun segment, uh, I want to come back to that because it really hits on one of the topics that I want to talk to you about as well, because I think that is critical uh, in having the discipline to get there at 6 a.m. really sets you up for, for success in everything that you do in, in life. But we'll come back to that consistency and discipline that, that, that you need. But I think it's a great point. Um, so the metaphors and ideas that are uh, still served up today by Michael Lewis's Moneyball never stop seemingly being in vogue here in, the, in the, the finance alternative industry. I know you have a point of view on this, so I'd like you to share in terms of baseball itself and then in business uh, performance. And anecdotally, it, it's, it's a part of our industry as well. And I can go into that a little bit um, from what we're seeing or the way we see it. And, and some folks may agree, some folks may disagree, but we see some uh, strong parallels to different aspects of Moneyball to the world that we live in today. Yeah. All right. So here's the deal with Moneyball, right? Uh, let's give Billy Bean out in, uh, you know, Oakland. Let's give him some credit there for what, for what he's done and the philosophy that he's used to take uh, players that, you know, that he developed talent 
But when that talent got to a certain point and threshold where they needed to get paid a certain amount, he oftentimes sent them moving. But he was able he was able to do that. And this is where some organizations, I think, didn't get the concept. He was able to do that because he had such a strong talent development system. So because his talent development system was so good, he didn't feel bad letting a player that was a high performer that was about to get paid big money. He wasn't afraid to let them go. Now, other teams tried to adopt the same philosophy. The problem is they didn't have the talent development in place to where that philosophy would be successful. So what started to happen was teams were bringing in all these Ivy leaguers, all these stack guys and gals, and there was an infusion of data into the sport that was not there previously outside of basic scouting reports. Now it's gone today. I believe it's gone to a, a level that is not showing, um, what I believe most teams intended for it to show like, you know, money ball and the analytics and the data has actually taken over the game. And now there's a place for it. But what's happening is when that data and that information drowns out feel and gut and instinctual decision-making, that's when it becomes an issue. So you have to have a balance of the two. You use data, you use technology strategically, but it is not the sole guide to the captain of the ship. It's got, there has to be a balance. And what I've seen amongst you great players that are a part of this database generation and great managers that are a part of this database generation, they use it, but they'll, they'll often override it if they know instinctually that their gut is saying, do this instead. And we've seen those decisions made in World Series play, uh, in big games, and they trust their gut over the data. But that doesn't mean the data is no good. It's, it's helped them get to that point. But there are moments where you have to make, you just got to make that gut decision. And maybe the data along the way has helped you make that decision. But there has to be a combination of both. Yeah, all, all, all makes, makes sense. So in other words, you know, the ROI on the purely analytics side of it may be going down a little bit and you're losing some of that, that um, eye test experience that, that should be used in conjunction and alongside that analytics data. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, there wasn't any analytics going on. So the, the, the need was really there and people dove right into it, but we've taken it a bit too far in your opinion these days. Yeah. Cause what you're seeing too, like I had a, um, I had a hitting coach up at the farm the other day and we were just, you know, having dinner and chatting and he said, you know, the hitters today are getting worse. They're becoming, they have more data and more information than ever before. But if you look at the numbers, they're actually going backwards because what they're doing is they're relying so much on data and numbers that they're as a hitter, that they're losing the feel, right? They're losing just the, the feel of being a hitter and, and feeling their swing. So, you know, how it applies to other industries is don't lose your feel. You got to have feel too. And you get feel through immersion. You get feel through practice. You get feel by being in the arena and in the game. So another way perhaps to say it is there's, there's an instinct that comes along with being a player, that comes along with being a business leader. And that's okay to trust your instincts once in a while because that's part of the process is why I'll, 
uh, as well and not relying so much on hard data for everything that we do. Exactly. And that also emerges too when you stop trying to be absolutely perfect all the time. You, you, it's, it, you know, this is very cliche. You've heard it in books. You know, it's the failures that thicken your skin. It's the failures that you've had that give you better instincts. So it's like uh, uh, protecting your kid against failure all the time. If they don't learn to fail, they're, they're, you're, they're not going to make the best decisions all the time because they've never failed, right? So we have to constantly allow ourselves as well as those around us to make the mistakes so that they can course correct. Yeah, I could spend a lot more time on this particular uh, subject, but I, I do have to move on, unfortunately. So many leaders in our industry, when I say our industry, I'll, I'll call it the uh, private capital alternative industry. Uh, we could see the headwinds that we're facing today, both with our clients, the general partners that we work with, as well as other service providers from third-party administrators, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, et cetera. Whether it's technology, the challenge of finding people, retaining people, uh, or the remote working environment that we're all trying to figure out today, the business model is changing. So my question to you is, and I know you've got a crystal clear answer here, what's your advice for leaders of our industry to best address all of these different headwinds? Because there are a lot coming at us uh, all at one time. Yeah. Well, you got it. I always say you have to know the rules of the game in which you play. Right. Yep. So with that, once, once you say, okay, well, you got to know the rules of the game in which you play. I mean, who said that it's going to be an easy ride? Who said that there's not going to be headwinds? And by the way, if you look back historically, there have always been headwinds. Today, they may just swirl a little bit more. You know, they may come in from the north and then all of a sudden you're getting hit from the west. But at the end of the day, there's always been headwinds. I was talking to a sales organization last week. And they said, well, do you know 60% of people in sales right now are struggling? And I said, well, pick what team you want to be on. Because what you just told me is there's 40% of people that are still winning. So what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on the headwinds or are you just focusing on, hey, you know what? I am a leader of a company. I'm an industry leader. And the fact that I am an industry leader there are going to be problems that I have to solve. There's going to be problems that I encounter. They come in different names, sizes, and, and at different times. But problems are a part of business. And if you are not conditioned mentally and physically to handle problems, one, two, five, or 10 at a time, you may have to, like I, a theme in my book is you have to fire yourself and rehire yourself under new terms because you're never going to avoid these problems. You know, and here's the other side of it, Mike. Today, everybody's talking about them. And when you talk about problems, you tend to find more of them. And the other thing is when you talk about problems, you start to become what I call a loser because all you're focused on is problems. That's negative. So how do you condition your mind to move towards solution? Something comes at you, just solve it. Don't bathe in it. We get worn down when we connect too long to emotion, to an emotion. So if we feel frustrated and we stay with it for a long time, we become frustrated. That becomes our condition. And it's very hard to solve anything from a position of chronic frustration and chronic negativity and chronic, ugh. you know, you gotta be open and you gotta expand. 
Yeah, that that is, I, I think that's phenomenal advice. And it reminds me uh, when I was in college, I had an accounting professor tell me as I was graduating, hey, let me give you one piece of advice. And it really fits into exactly what you were saying. Run towards, not away from the challenges uh, in your organization. If there's a problem that needs fixing, go towards it, embrace yep. it, figure it out. That's how you make yourself valuable uh, as an employee to any, any, any company. So I think it fits into exactly what you're saying. And I think it's tremendous advice. Yeah. Um, we are getting close here to the end. Uh, I do have, you know, one or two more questions. And then we do have, uh, you know, a couple of questions from, from the audience, but um, one question, do you have a list of favorite coaches or a favorite coach of all time? And do you see any common traits um, that have made these coaches successful over time? Well, all of the coaches that I follow, they have a success system, right? They don't just hope and wish that this year is going to be a great season. You know, they all have a plan. They all know what it is that they're going to do, and they're all offensive players. So when you have a plan, you're playing offense and you just attack. So some of the coaches that I really have, have enjoyed through the years, Coach Mike Chachevsky, you know, former Duke head coach, sure. uh, John Calipari, Again, he's a different, he's got more bravado. I like his bravado, but he's got a very strong system. You got Nick Saban from the University of Alabama and, and Joe Torrey was one of the best that I've ever worked under. So four coaches, four different personalities, but all of which have a method. And that method and that system is what allows them to have predictable results over time. It's, you know, there's a lot of talk about habits today. There's a lot of talk about routines today. The only reason you engage in a habit that's positive or a routine that's positive is because you're looking for predictable results. And as people, you know, it plays right into the Maslow's hierarchy of safety and security. When you have predictable results and you have a system that leads to predictability, it eases your nervousness and it eases the paranoia that most people have. So that's what I see amongst those four coaches that I find to be very admirable. Yeah. Pre preparation does that for you, right? 100%. You got to be prepared or you're going to be exposed. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So here's, here's a question uh, from someone in the audience that uh, I, as a, a Yankee fan, get a kick out of. What was it like working with George Steinbrenner? We've all heard the stories about his toughness. And he read a post that you share that would come in, that he would come in daily and walk the aisles of the parking lot to make sure that each parking spot number matched the car sticker. Um, and, uh -huh. and if they weren't, you know, security guards would get fired. You know, it starts with the little things, right? And if you miss on the little, you miss on the big. What's, what's your response to that question? I call, I call this parking lot leadership. I just spoke <laughs> on it last week. But yeah, you know, George Steinbrenner would come down Dale Mabry Highway from South Tampa. And there'd be guards along the way that would be calling his arrival in on the walkie-talkie. So everybody knew when he was coming because you could see the cadence of people that worked for the organization speeding up postures would change because they knew that this, um, this, uh, high powered, you know, leader was coming to the stadium. So get ready. And this would happen every day, by the way, he's coming five minutes, three minutes. And this blue BMW seven series would pull in. And the first thing he would do when he got out of the car, he'd go parking spot to parking spot to make sure that the parking spot that you were parked in, that number matched your last name and it matched the number of the sticker. And if the sticker that hung in the window or the, you know, the tag wasn't presented, if you didn't have it hanging, he'd freak out. 
and he would fire the guy at the gate. And this would happen all the time. He'd rehire them, but he would constantly get on people for little things. I remember when he walked in uh, after we signed A-Rod in 2004, Alex was on an elliptical getting ready for the day. And uh, George walks in with his finger like this across the room and he's walking and he's walking and he's walking. And he goes, Alex, do you see this? And he had a World Series ring on. He goes, this is what I brought you here for. Anything short of this, we have failed. Wow. And he walked out. That was it. Yeah. But, but he was a very intense leader. But, you know, he, he upset a lot of people. But those people were not cut for that organization. So he, he put a standard in place, an expectation in place, and you either met it or that was not the place for you to be. And you would, you would, you would typically get caught and he'd let you go. You'd be let go. Yeah. So. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And uh, it, that, that about does it uh, for the time that we have today. I think that was a great story to end on uh, for those uh, baseball fans out there, not just Yankee fans. Uh, George Steinbrenner was a, a towering figure uh, and, and did so much for the game and uh, really an unbelievable life story. So, so thank you for that. And thank you for your time today, Coach Dana. Uh, really means a lot to us here at Four Pines. You have incredible wisdom and insight into a lot of topics that we think about on a daily basis. So thank you. Cool. Very much appreciated. And, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch soon. And thanks for everybody for joining. Uh, it was great. Great to have everybody today. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.